Good morning. Good to see you. Is it on? Okay. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Begin our study in verse 5 of Luke 11. <clears throat> Just a reminder, Luke is, has transitioned from primarily looking at who Jesus is and the declarations about him and what Jesus has done to show his messiahship. But now he has transitioned to this section is more about discipleship, what he's requiring of disciples. And so there's going to be a lot that we look at there. Uh, the very first one we have seen <clears throat> in chapter 11 here it has been uh, the disciples observing Jesus pray and therefore asking about teach us to pray like you have prayed. Uh, that obviously is a pretty interesting question just for, from the standpoint of uh, the Jews uh, have a very rigid practice of prayer, right? Third, sixth, ninth hour of the day. They have a rigid practice of prayer. And for these guys who have obviously uh, probably spent their lives practicing that third, sixth, ninth hour daily praying, uh, now turn around and listen to Jesus and go, wow, something's wrong with the way I pray. Teach us to pray in the same way. So he starts with the pattern as we're uh, acquainted with. Uh, just one little note on that. Uh, most uh, <clears throat> Jewish commentators will talk about this this sample prayer, so to speak, this example prayer as an index prayer. In other words, you have these short little statements, short little requests that you would take and they would introduce a broader uh, request pattern, so to speak, like you pray, give us this day our daily bread, then what else could you pray for? Well, you could pray for uh, your job, you could pray for anything that would have to do with that, uh, you know, you, you could go on and on about various things like that. So each of these would be a pattern by which you could pray for all kinds of things. And you look at the patterns of prayer in the New Testament and you would see them fit into this category. Make sense? So anyway, good. That, that's, I think, a good, good point to, uh, to keep in mind. All right, there's introduction. Let's, uh, let's begin our class with prayer. Father, thank you for the blessings uh, that you have provided us already this day, uh, giving us life and breath and beautiful light uh, for us to live in. Please help us as we study this morning to see your greater uh, person and picture and love that you have for us. Thank you for all of those things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, added to teaching them how to pray now is this parable. So let's read the parable, 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is a friend, 
Yet because of his impudence, or marginal uh, in some versions, others, uh, persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, your, will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All right, a uh, lot of details we talk about in the text, but first and foremost, uh, what would you explain to somebody as just the major point? That's it. What's the main point of the parable? So just explanation of that before anything else. Persistent prayer. Okay. So that would be a uh, certainly a major point. What would we learn about God along with that major point? Okay, yeah, he's, he, he is always available, and there's, there's something in this parable that goes even beyond those characters. Yeah. He wants that intimate relationship with us, because he knows Okay, there's, there's certainly an urging that, that it, he, is, he is available, isn't there? Um, if you make a contrast between the friend and God, what's the contrast? I don't really think this is primarily talking about our persistence in prayer. God's there. You're not going to be there. Say a little loud. Does the friend want to get up? No. The friend doesn't want to get up. Neither do I. <laughs> uh, by the way, what does that tell you about the house? I'm, I'm not going off subject here. What does it tell you about this guy's house? It's probably just a one-room house and everybody's sleeping in that room. And if he gets up, he wakes the entire house up. So not like our house where all the kids are someplace else and you get up and you take care of it. Yeah, this guy doesn't want to get up. God, he, you don't need to nag him. <laughs> That's the idea. Adam, Adam. He's going to answer. 
That's your idea. And he's going to talk about persistence in prayer. I don't want to take away from that because he's going to talk about that in another parable in chapter 18. But Luke happens to give three, par- three main parables on prayer. And uh, so he has this one, and he's going to have one in chapter 18. Where he's going to talk about persistence in prayer. But in this case, he's talking about the willingness of God to answer prayer. So that's real important to, that's what you want to, to really highlight in this. It's a, as Adam said, a so much better, in fact, a contrast between a guy who the only reason he gets up is, does he get up because you're a friend? No, no he didn't get up because you're a friend. <laughs> I've, I've loved to use this analogy. I, I used it with a number of months ago with Jerry and his, uh, his clan. You know, if I went and beat on his door at 12 o'clock at night after he's got all his kids together and I said, hey, I got, a, I got this friend just came in town and I need some food. I, I, I teased him, said he'd kill me. He says, no, I'd get up. No, you blew my whole analogy. <laughs> Sheesh. <laughs> Be mean like I am. Come on. You know, don't be so nice. <laughs> but but you, you, you see the thing. It's interesting. He doesn't get up even though he's a friend. He gets up because he won't go away. <laughs> That's right. Which does get into the persistence, but only with a friend. You know, it just, God's like, you don't have to hound me. <laughs> You don't, you don't have to do that. I am a good father. That's, that's really the, the, the picture there. So it, it is, if, if that teaches us how to pray, then what has Jesus just taught us? To pray with great expectation. Okay, good. Pray with great expectation. All right? Anything else? Any other way of looking at it? Another way of saying that? Even. You don't have to nag him. Okay? You don't have to nag him to get you. It's not that we're not persistently praying, but it's, you don't want to look at it like the only way I'm going to get an answer is if I bug him to death. <laughs> you know, he's a willing father. He's like any father. He is willing to answer. He's eager to answer. Exactly. So do we think we have that um, hesitancy in us sometimes of, well, is this important enough to pray about to God? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I don't want to bother him. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, maybe I can handle this one myself, uh, whatever. Well, and, and uh, that's interesting you bring that up because 
usually this comes from somebody who's not a Christian to me. They'll say, well, I know if you pray, then he'll, he'll hear, <laughs> he'll hear you. Like I got some special line and every now and then, you know, a Christian might say something like that. Well, that, that, yeah, God isn't a respecter of persons. He's the, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20. So we have, God's going to answer anybody's prayer who is a, his servant. And he's, he's not a respecter of persons. He's not going to listen to one person more than another necessarily if they're righteous and serving God. That makes sense? Am, am I answering your question? <laughs> I guess I'm not sure. Sometimes I ask the question of why do, if God cares about my problems or somebody else's problems or somebody else's illness or whatever, why do I have to pray? Why doesn't he just go ahead and do something about it? That's not your question. Okay. <laughs> Because this is, it does identify motive, proper motives here. It's not like, you know, I'd kind of like a snack tonight at midnight. I think I'll whack on my neighbor's door <laughs> to get that. Good, good. All right, so, yeah, Karen. Yeah, so those who ask him will get the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> no, good question. I'm teasing. Uh, yeah, and it is interesting that, uh, like, when you if you read Matthew's account, it will say how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to uh, to you, uh, where in this. Luke is very, very big on highlighting the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he does so in his gospel, and he does so even more in his uh, second treatise uh, in, in Acts. Uh, so Holy Spirit, remember, if we go back to the Old Testament, it's going to represent the giving of life. And giving of life, it would be a very broad statement. It's not just giving life spiritually. It's giving life in every kind of way. Even here, uh, while we're in this present age, he's giving life. So how much more? And it's interesting, the analogies he uses here. If, if you ask your father for a fish, is he going to give you a serpent? If you ask him for bread, is he going to give you a stone? And as to, to uh, uh, Chip's statement here, uh, what are they asking for? What are we asking for? We're not asking for uh, a uh, fancy car. We're asking for you know, this, these necessities here, and will he not uh, provide those? So how much more is he going to give the Holy Spirit, the gifts of God? 
I, I always, I think it's important to connect this with the very first words of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with all, what? Spiritual. Spiritual blessings are blessings from the Spirit. All spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit is the one who's responsible for bringing us every good gift from God. So, Holy Spirit, good gifts equal uh, the same thing. One talking about the source, the other talking about the actual product. Good? Makes sense? Okay. Good. Any, 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 what, what else, when he looks at his conclusions from the parable, what are his conclusions? What's Jesus' admonition out of this? Yeah. That, no, that God is going to take care of us and give us good things, okay. not evil. Yeah, it, 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 we, we as earthly fathers, <laughs> fathers and mothers, we, uh, we give, uh, try to give good gifts, but we don't always. And you who are, he says, evil, <laughs> he compares us to him. He's good, you're evil, and you know how to give gifts. How much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? Teresa. Exactly, which is the reason he uses Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, the, he, he's not talking about uh, simply uh, some of these uh, gifts as we would translate or interpret good gifts as uh, uh, health, wealth, and, you know, prosperity or something like that. Yeah. Not to say that we don't ask and plead for relief of our physicals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and obviously earlier in the prayer, uh, he said, give us this day our daily bread. So he's not against us uh, certainly asking for uh, the things that we need in this life. But as you said, what should supersede that is, uh, is where our welfare and spiritual welfare and good preparing us for eternity. Okay, good, good point. Anything else there? He gave an admonition. What was it? Ask, seek, knock. Okay. Present tense, by the way. 
keep doing it, keep asking, keep seeking. I mean, is there ever a time where you go, well, I think I've told him everything I ever uh, need to know, so I need him to know and ask for, so I guess I'll, uh, I'll put that on a hiatus for a year or two and see if anything else comes up. <laughs> no, uh, every day we need him. Uh, we sing a song, I need you every hour. Uh, and every day we need him, ask, seek, knock. There's a, there is a pursuit of God. And uh, there's a difference between nagging God, <laughs> thinking that if you nag him enough, he'll give it to you. But there's a difference between that and, and pursuing him and pursuing what God wants that's good for me. Here's, Teresa brought up Job's problem. Job's problem was he, he is just looking at it from the standpoint of his physical earthly welfare and how he feels and the pain he's in and relieve me from the pain. And he's not thinking in terms of uh, what God is doing for him through the trial. He's not seeing that. Uh, and that's why when you get to the end and Job is asked all these questions and God finally turns around and asks him a series of questions and never answers his questions. In other words, are you going to trust me as your father to take you through whatever I deem necessary for you to go through? Are you going to trust that? And that is our biggest failure in a trial. Give me relief now <laughs> is our biggest failing in a trial. And we must recognize it wouldn't have happened if God hadn't allowed it. It may have come from Satan, but God still allowed it. Now we've got to be thankful. Now that's why James and Paul will say, count it all joy when you go through trials, because God knows what he's doing. He's going to give good gifts, Melissa. <clears throat> and it's very humbling. It's humbling to have to ask and to not and to see. And it's very humbling to have to go to your neighbor at this hour of asking. So I don't know if that's kind of just point two, but it's, it's humbling us uh, where we do put our full trust. Yeah, and that, that humbling implies utter dependence, doesn't it? So, uh, th and that's where prayer ought to be. If I'm not praying very much, then I must not feel uh, the need to be dependent on him. I think I can handle, handle this. And, and prayer constantly indicates uh, I can't handle this. I have no intention of handling this because I realize my powerlessness to do so. I'm going to be dependent. And that, that comes back to the very first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, that is where it has to be. And, and trials are there to help us learn dependence. Without a trial, you think you got the got life by the tail, you know, you think you can just do whatever you want and it's going to always work out well, but that's not the way this works. Okay. So those are all important principles. Yeah, Chip. I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 4 as well, because part of this, I think, message is although we're humble and we realize we're not holy, uh, so why do we listen to uh, it? But in this parable, it says that he will, so don't be afraid to ask yeah. and continue to ask. Be bold. Um, and it, it doesn't matter what I 
And doesn't that make us relax? <laughs> you can take a breath and go, it's going to be fine. <laughs> and I know this is the point, I'll just interject one more thing. It isn't the point of this particular message because you're going to get it in chapter 12 where he's going to talk about anxiety. Don't be anxious. So the, the, the intention of this little section is so that we aren't anxious and therefore pray, which is Matthew chapter 6, the sparrows and the lilies. Luke's going to get there in the next chapter right. when he talks about the spirits and the lilies and not the anxious. So that's not necessarily the point of this section, although it's, a, it's, it's still a theme there. Don't be anxious, people. Understand where you need to go. And as you said, this Luke introduces something that Paul, I mean, the Hebrew writer, uh, obviously not. Uh, Paul, but uh, was Apollos, you know, but anyway, uh, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew writer uh, bring, brings out as far as we have this great high priest is always before the throne of God. He's been through this. He can, he can deal with uh, what you're going through. He knows how you're going through and he can be there and you can pray to him. So yeah, th this, uh, this ought to be able, this, this text ought to cause us to, when we're going through something, just take a deep breath and go, Oh, I can relax. This is going to be fine. He's got this, and I need to just pursue and seek Him. And He's going to He's He's going to get me through to the other side. That's really hard to do when you're in pain, and when you're in agony, and when you're in doubt, and when you can't figure out what's going to happen tomorrow, and you think the world's going to come to an end for your life, and, and all those things crowd in on your mind and cause you to panic which we have all done. <laughs> so that's just the way it is. So we need to need to have that. It's good, Alan. You started talking about it, but you know, the fact that he wants, it takes action on our part. He knows what we need. He knows what we, what we desire, but it still takes action on our part to ask, yes. to seek, and knock. He wants us yeah. to realize that he's the one that's providing this, yeah. not us. 
That's right. If you don't, and if, and you know, I, I brought up the question a minute ago, why didn't God just do it? If I don't care enough to connect with him and ask him, uh, why should he <laughs> then uh, do for me? He's trying to bring a relationship between us. He's trying to bring a dependency between us. It's not going to be good for me if he just does things without my pursuit of him because it's not understanding where my real life is yes, found. Yeah. He just gave it to him. Well, he Maybe did, not. but he... <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but, yeah, they, and they didn't trust. He gave a man every day. They didn't deserve it. Yeah, they didn't deserve it. That's right, and they didn't appreciate it either. Where's the, where's the quail? <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to this next one. And this, again, is going to uh, challenge uh, discipleship. Uh, verse 14, he says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So you notice, please don't skip that part right there. Please pay careful attention. You have some who obviously believe the people marveled. But then you have these two categories of individuals. Uh, one who doubts that he even did anything great at all, and the other who test him and say, I, I, I'd like to see more. <laughs> more proof, please. More proof, please. Uh, all of that. All right, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Uh, really, the context is going to keep going. But let's, let's just stop there and, and deal with this. Uh, I, I want you to answer the, the, the first question, which is something we've talked about earlier about demons, uh, but uh, this text is really what fleshes it out. What in this text would prove that demon possession doesn't exist today? Or help prove it, I should ask. Yes. What did you say right here? When a man stronger than me attacks his house, if God had not taken Satan, defeated Satan, there'd still be demon possession. Yeah. Since God defeated Satan, there's no more demon possession. Yeah. So what he's doing is, all right, he's bound him, and he's bound the strong, the stronger than the strong man. He's bound him. He's spoiling his goods. He's casting out these demons. And uh, if that was unsuccessful, the apostles went ahead and did that as well. And if that was unsuccessful and it's still going on today, then the message would be, uh, well, I guess Satan did a reversal and was able to turn around and get unbound and continue to do what he's doing. Of course, again, your key Old Testament text that says the unclean spirit would be cast out of the land is? Exodus 
I've only said this 14 times, I think. His? Zechariah. There's 14 chapters in Zechariah. Keep going. In between 12 and 14, 13. <laughs> Zechariah 13, verse 2, 1 and 2, verse 2 specifically. When the Messiah comes, the unclean spirit will be cast out of the land. So that's what's happening. It's a fulfillment of what Zechariah had said 500 years earlier. <clears throat> All right, so uh, I, I just wanted to highlight that first and foremost, that this is a great, great text to indicate that uh, these, these, this demon possession has come to an end. All right, so we have some who say he cast out demons by Beelzebub. Got um, to have to explain Beelzebub to somebody you're teaching. Who's that? Yeah, it says right there, it's Satan. He's the, He's the ruler of the demons, that's right. <laughs> Good. Uh, that comes from Baal-zebub, which was a god of the Old Testament, uh, and uh, good old uh, Queen Jezebel was quite the worshiper of Baal-zebub. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, some suggest that he was the god, of, he was the dung god the god of the flies. <laughs> so, just uh, disgusting stuff uh, there. All right, Jesus' argument, very simple, right? Every kingdom divided against this, it itself is laid waste. It can't stand. It can't fall. It can't be able to survive. If Satan's casting out his own demons, then he's going to destroy his own kingdom. All right? Note the word kingdom. Satan has a kingdom. He's the king over his kingdom. Need to note that. Why is that important? In the God's broad scheme of what he's doing. The king only has authority to the citizens of his kingdom. Okay. Satan, if we are not in Satan's kingdom and we are in God's kingdom, Satan has no authority over us. That's right. He has no power. If we stay in God's kingdom, 1 John 4, verse 4, greater is he who is in you. You have overcome him because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've overcome the world. He cannot conquer you. We never get in our minds that, oh, you know, the, my temptations are so bad I can't, I, I can't survive. No, that's not true. Uh, he, he cannot conquer you. So his kingdom is, uh, is, is a kingdom. It's powerful. But God is, this is the, what the whole Bible is about. God is conquering and crushing Satan's kingdom. That's what it's all about. The prophecies of the coming kingdom of Jesus is about not a new kingdom necessarily. God's always had his kingdom. It's the prophecies of God putting his conqueror, his son, over this kingdom so that the son can now destroy Satan's kingdom. 
last enemy to be destroyed is death, remember, 1 Corinthians 15, and then he gives the kingdom back to God. Humpty Dumpty's put back together again. Jesus is the one who is conquering him. And at the course, very end of Revelation, Satan is cast into the furnace of fire. All of his followers are doing the same, are in the same situation, and the whole kingdom then comes back together. Everything in the Bible is about that. You always want to see that. Uh, first prophecy of the Bible, right? Genesis 3.15. You have the offspring of the, so the serpent and the offspring of the serpent battling against the woman and the offspring of the woman. He just told you what the whole Bible is about. He just told you what all of uh, physical history, if you will, all of the heavens and the earth and everything, the whole reason we exist. It's all about conquering Satan's kingdom. And our faithfulness, Ephesians 3, verse 10, is going to show the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the manifold wisdom of God, which is his eternal purpose. See, all those things keep connecting. Some of those things I said you probably got lost in, but if you did, you can ask a question right now. <laughs> We've talked about those things many times, but of course, not with just this group this morning. So that's, that's different. Okay, any questions? Okay, notice a few things more about the text. What do, first, what does it mean in verse 16? They kept seeking from, from him a sign from heaven. That is not just simply they're seeking more signs. They're seeking a sign from heaven. What is a sign from heaven in the Jewish mind? <laughs> that would probably be a pretty good sign. <laughs> but we, uh, let's define it more generically. What would it mean to do a sign in the Jewish mind? What would it mean to do a sign from heaven? If you're reading Matthew's account, Matthew would have Jesus replying and saying, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Uh, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and raise up. That'll be your only sign. So what's a sign from heaven? Pardon? Okay, good. So what, what they're saying is, yeah, that's a sign. That's a really cool sign. That's a really cool miracle, all that kind of stuff. But show us a sign that is absolutely impossible for Satan to do. Show us a sign that truly, without any question, shows a sign that God is the one who did this. So does it remind you today of... Uh, uh, any number of belief systems, you know, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth and the world goes, well, maybe it just happened by chance. Prove it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, I think I'll take all the parts, the four and a half million parts to a Boeing 747, uh, put them all inside of a big building and blow them up nine kabillion times and see if they ever come together and make a Boeing 747. Uh, well, but if you did it for five billion years, it might. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not.
And the thing of it is, should the signs he's giving already have proven it to them? Of course. But he says the only sign that could possibly uh, meet your requirements is when I raise from the dead. And that's why he says, sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. That's right. That's the sign you're going to get. And it's not, I mean, it's not that they shouldn't have understood this. In fact, he just gives the argument here that if, if, if Satan didn't cast out, isn't casting out Satan, then who is? Who's casting these demons out if Satan isn't? There's only one other choice. That's right. I must be doing it by the hand finger of God. He uses those words. I must be doing it by the finger of God. If I'm doing it by the finger of God, if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then who am I? The king who's brought the kingdom. That's who I am. It's a natural uh, follow-up. Yeah. It's interesting that God says the finger. God's got so much power and yeah. justice that's right. Uh, by the way, the, there's two times in the Old Testament where that phrase is used. Uh, one of them that matches this quite well. The magicians, when they saw the plagues, they got about halfway through the plagues and realized it wasn't them doing it. And they said, this is, told Pharaoh, this is nothing but the finger of God. <laughs> Even they. I wonder if Jesus didn't use that term as poking them. Even the Egyptian magicians could recognize a sign and realize it was from heaven. And you can't. Yeah, and very similar. He uses that argument right here when he says, uh, uh, basically, if you think I'm driving these demons out of the everybody else's book, what about your own songs? I know. What about your people? So there are apparently people who either could or somehow yeah, yeah. performed exorcisms. Right. And they were accusing people of doing that by the, by the power of the Elsa Exactly. That reminds you of Acts 19 when the seven sons of Sceva decided to go in and cast out some demons on the basis of the, in the name of, uh, of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the, one of the funniest passages in the whole Bible where the guy with demon possession jumped on them and ripped them to pieces, tore all their clothes off, and they went out naked. Yes, and who are you? <laughs> yeah, great, uh, great. Yeah, who who are the who are these uh, your own uh, exorcists that run around? You never say that they do it by demons, and I'm I'm guessing, but I would imagine they mostly fail <laughs> as, as the one in Acts 19. Last, one of the greatest points of this whole thing is nobody denies this happened. No, the, that now, now now listen to what Chip is saying here because this is the most important part of this whole thing. They just admitted he did a miracle. They just admitted he did a miracle. Here are the enemies of Jesus who, if there was any way they could deny he did a miracle, this would be the one they would need to deny. They can't deny it. 
You see that over and again by the enemies of Jesus in Acts 3 when the, the, lame, the man lame from birth is healed. The council says that a notable miracle has been done among them. Uh, it's evident to all and we cannot deny it, Acts 4 verse 13. So the, these are really important things, especially for somebody who's questioning whether the, they're going to believe or not in Jesus and you read these kinds of things. What you're showing here is they, even the enemies, those who can't stand him, who would like to get rid of him, even they are admitting a miracle has been done. So his argument then is seals the fact that the miracle was done, but not only done, it was done by God, which makes him the king. Now, the very last words, verse 23, if you're not, if you're not against me, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not uh, uh, with me, then you're, you're, you're on the other side of the fence. Make a choice, and you better make the choice quickly. Which side are you on? Very, very powerful text. Okay, good observations. Good, good job. Uh, figure out now how uh, this next section is going to fit in with what we just read, especially down through verse uh, 28. And then, of course, you're going to get the sign of Jonah in 29, etc. All right, very good.